This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Kylie Morris here, standing in for Geraldine Duke this week. Welcome to Extra. Great to have your company. But first, could COVID's, another of COVID's repercussions be a new way to frame what economic success looks like? If economic growth is contingent on lifting productivity, then when can we change the rules to lift the barriers faced by certain workers? What about increases in childcare subsidies to allow highly skilled women to work more if they want? And better options for older people who'd prefer to keep working? That might be you at home, so I'd be keen to hear your thoughts. Uh, You can always text us on 0418 226 576. We thought we'd take a look at where the two major parties sit in terms of childcare subsidies and parental leave, and we'll also talk about ways of staying in the workforce if you're older while remaining satisfied and relevant. Elizabeth Hill is Associate Professor in Political Economy at the University of Sydney and a Director of the Gender Equality in Working Life Research Initiative. And Barbara Cosson is a co-founder of War on Wasted Talent. They're a social enterprise aiming to change the conversation around work and ageing and provide a service that allows mature age professionals and employers to connect. Elizabeth and Barbara, welcome to Saturday Extra. Thanks, Thanks, Carly. Lovely to be here. Now, Elizabeth, this week we did hear a lot from Josh Frydenberg about uh, how he plans to control new spending and continue to grow the economy. Now, you're an expert in understanding the opportunities for women in the workforce. There are, it seems, workforce shortages everywhere. Are women rushing out to get these jobs and grow the economy as the Treasurer would like? Well, yes, they are. Um, Women have bounced back incredibly strongly from the pandemic where they lost more jobs and more hours of work than men. We saw that in last month's labour force data that shows women returned to work with gusto, clocking up an historical high participation rate of almost 62.5%. And I guess this isn't surprising. Um, As you said in your intro, Australian women are the best educated in the world We're better educated than ever before, and we're better educated than men. In fact, one in two women in their mid-20s to mid-30s has a university degree these days. And what we find um, in our own research is that they're job-focused, they have strong aspirations for successful futures at work, and they're ready to go. But I think what the Treasurer failed to point out is that in spite of this really strong performance, women's participation in paid work is more than eight percentage points lower than men's. We see the implications of this in the ABS data and in our own research, which shows us that women want to work more hours, they want to work more days, and they also want to work in jobs that reflect their skills and ambitions. But the problem is that the high cost and lack of accessible early childhood education and care means that many women work less than they'd like to and often in jobs below their skill level where they're able to get the kind of shorter hours or the flexibility they need to manage their care commitments for their children and their family. So we find that women feel that the current working care systems are just not working for them and that they feel forced or backed into a corner where they've got to choose between work and care. 
And I guess what we'd say is that this represents a huge wasted resource and is a really significant drag on Australia's growth and productivity. The way to kind of cut through is by extending publicly funded universal early childhood education and care. I mean, you talk about trading down, which of course is something, Barbara, that you strike, no doubt, in, in your field of work as well, yes. this idea of wasted talent. But can I find out from uh, you, first of all, what are major parties offering? What are the actual policy uh, policies on offer when it comes to assisting uh, with that issue? So in terms of childcare, the coalition offers the current system and this does include a number of changes that they introduced last month that saw an increase in the subsidy provided for second and third children in care and that was as high as 95%. And they also did away with the annual cap on subsidies for higher income households. And that has improved affordability for families with two or more kids in formal early childhood education and care. Um, Tuesday's budget also included funding for 20 new centres to be built in areas that um, don't have that service available. On the ALP side, they have promised cheaper childcare. We saw this in the budget reply speech and they have a plan to lift the subsidy for early childhood education and care and out-of-school hours care through an additional almost $5.5 billion investment in the current scheme. And the idea is that the new investment will see about 96% of families being better off. That's quite a, a significant difference. And I think the other interesting thing from the ALP side is that they plan to design and implement an early year strategy that will coordinate all services for young children across government and take a whole of government approach. And I think this is absolutely what's needed. We need to move beyond a piecemeal response to these issues and really have a joined up approach. And that includes thinking about paid parental leave because at the moment our paid parental leave scheme and our early childhood education and care systems don't articulate very well. And so it means that for parents of young children, they often find themselves having sorted themselves out for a moment and then they go back to work and they're kind of scrambling, well, I can't get care for another year or another six months or another three months. What do I do? And they're kind of patching things together. So paid parental leave is another really important piece of the picture. Um, I guess on that front, I'd say it's really good to see paid parental leave put on the table by the coalition in the, in the budget. The 2010 system was always designed to be improved. So what we saw on Tuesday night was the coalition um, advocating a new um, system of paid parental leave where the existing 18 weeks is rolled together with the two weeks of dad and partner pay to equal a total of 20 weeks. And that total is now available for either parent to use in any combination, and it can be taken flexibly over the first two years of a child's life. So you don't just have to use it all in a single block. You can use half of it and then um, it, one for immediately after the birth, and then you can come back and maybe one or, or each parent could use it one day a week for whatever period of time is left. So I think the important thing here is that they've got rid of those antiquated notions of primary and secondary carers. And I guess the other thing to say is that we, we need a lot more than 20 weeks. That is just not enough for parents to, to care for newborn children, to get themselves reorganised. And the, ev the global evidence suggests that we need to get much closer to 30 weeks.
Barbara, Elizabeth's been describing, I guess, the the very real impact that those necessary childcare reforms could have in the workplace and why they're so critical. But when you work in your organisation, the war on wasted talent, you're not only looking at parents who aren't in the workforce or women not in the workforce, but indeed older workers. Older workers, yes. You know, older older women often, when they have just sort of managed to complete all their childcare responsibilities and they are able then to move into the workforce in a more full-time capacity, they actually often face gendered bias in the workplace. And, in fact, the Human Rights Commission reports that older women are more likely than older men to be, you know, perceived as having outdated skills being too slow to learn new things or, you know, someone who might deliver a more unsatisfactory job. So, you know, women cop it, you know, not just with the with the childcare issues. It, it um, tends to go on. They suffer from a, a, a bit of accumulated disadvantage um, as a result of that. Barbara, can you explain what are you doing with War on Wasted Talent to assist and help those people? We've been working on developing War on Wasted Talent for the last couple of years. And I guess we got involved in this because uh, from our own experience, I'm a a woman in that older demographic, I'm 60 plus. And so uh, I and my colleagues meet a lot of people who have had the experience of going through the recruitment process as older workers. And they're often pretty shocked at the way that they're treated, particularly well-skilled and professional people experience this as well. So we're about, you know, wanting to see people flourish at work. Uh, We're about the human element of productivity, if you like. So not just keeping people in work just because they're older. We don't think that'll increase productivity. But we do think that if people can be in satisfying work and can have their work valued and can avoid bias, then, you know, they're, they're more likely to be productive. But you're, you're also about overcoming some of those stereotypes, aren't you? For example, I understand you've got a program you know, where you assist people um, who might be perceived as not being able to cope with tech. You're trying to encourage them to look at options in cybersecurity, for example. Yes, so we've got a few programs that we're offering and we've got a bit of a pilot going at the moment. We're inviting professional people uh, 45 plus because um, surprisingly enough, discrimination in the workplace can be start, is starting at younger and younger ages and um, about three in 10 Australians aged 45 and over are experiencing it. So we've got a number of programs. We've got an employment platform, first of all, or we're, we're piloting that at the moment where, uh, you know, we're trying to, Um, enable mature professionals to be able to present themselves directly online to employers. So that's one of them. We're also providing a range of resources, so training, career support program. We're sort of helping people identify where they might need tech support. But we've also partnered with Latrobe University to, uh, and they're involved in a very big project to try and increase uh, Australia's cybersecurity capacity. So our role within that partnership, which also includes people like um, Optus and Cisco and Quantum Victoria, just to name a few, is to actually help older workers transition into cybersecurity. The reason being that, you know, we think of cybersecurity as totally tech intensive, you know, hackers working in the basements of buildings, sort of um, hacking into sensitive information or protecting our own. Whereas 
you know, actually they need people with a wide range of skills, you know, communications, project management, client relationships, it's really broad. And it's very important for cybersecurity to have diversity. So our role is to try and transition people who, who are looking to make a transition in their career as older workers into cybersecurity and with a particular emphasis on older mm. women. Elizabeth, um, in the lead up to the budget, we did hear of a group of Liberal backbenchers reportedly pushing to unleash, I think it was called, a grey army of retired workers to boost the nation's <laughs> stretched employment market. Mm. Um, now, whether or not we like the term, it was about, uh, you know, the government allowing pensioners to work more because at present retirees face such financial penalties, even if they work one or two extra days a fortnight. What what are the arguments for not letting them work more? Well, look, I mean, we're all for, um, you know, people working, uh, older people having access to work. If they enjoy it, if it helps them economically, obviously it's going to be good for them and good for the economy. But uh, compared to New Zealand, for example, we have a lot less uh, older workers in the workforce than they do. And I think, I'm, look, I'm not in really knowledgeable about this, but I do know that there, are, if we could increase the number of people 55 and over in the Australian workforce, we would lift our GDP by about $33 billion. So it's significant. I think retirement is changing. The whole idea of people retiring is changing. I mean, I know that the retirement age has been pushed back, but at the same time, you know, people are seeing the value of staying in the workplace. And in fact, the older demographic is rejecting retirement at a great rate. They're they're looking to work beyond it because they enjoy working. They're more committed to work because they enjoy it. So I think there are some systemic systemic issues that really do need to be addressed. And one of them is the issue of age, age diversity. Elizabeth, can I ask, perhaps this record low unemployment rate, does that actually provide an opportunity for these reforms to be carried out? Carly, I think the opportunity comes from um, this post, this unique, um, the unique nature of this post-pandemic moment, where we've had closed borders, and we've ended up with a very tight labour market that has delivered the low unemployment rate that you you talk about, and it means that there's new pressure to really think about where um, we've got excess capacity that isn't being well deployed in our labour markets and across the economy, and if now isn't the time that our leaders um, look towards the um, capacity of Australian women and work towards changing policy settings so that they are able to more freely engage in paid work um, with the care support that is required. Uh, I really don't know what will change uh, um, where we've got to. Barbara, do you agree with that? A critical moment, a moment of opportunity for change? Look, yes. You know, I know, Kylie, that Elizabeth was mentioning earlier about the number of women who have benefited um, and are now sort of in the work workforce as a result of this. But I do wonder how long this is going to last. Older workers and women uh, in particular were significantly affected by COVID early on. And while it seems that there's been a lot of opportunity created now through the skill shortage, I do wonder what the long-term opportunity is here because, you know, we've had our migration and skilled worker programs on hold. So now that the borders are opening and people are coming back in. So, you know, I think we need to be concerned about short-term fixes. 
Barbara, of course, productivity isn't just an economic term, is it? It's also a personal experience. Absolutely. Can, can you describe for us the kind of, I guess, what kind of satisfaction and benefits you might see when you connect someone to a job or new skills to extend or revitalise their career? Well, we, I mean, we're, that's what we're working towards at the moment, which is why we're piloting it. But I guess some of the experiences that we're hearing about are uh, I heard a, a, an eye-opening experience quite recently when an older woman, woman went for a job interview with a recruiter who was quite a bit younger than she was. And um, anyway, she did not get the position, but the, the recruiter decided to pass on some advice to her. And she suggested that she this older woman would not get a job with an employer um, unless she fully covered her arms because she had this sort of sagging under her arms and, you know, that wasn't um, that wasn't the sort of thing that was going to get her a job. And I think this is, comes right back to that um, uh, Australian, Australian Human Rights Commission report about this heightened, if you like, scrutiny of women's appearance in the workplace. Uh, you know, trying to overcome those sorts of things, that is not no easy fix. There's a very deep uh, assumptions that exist in our community. That's, that almost feels like culture, doesn't it? It is very cultural. Um, and they're, you know, these views, you know, they older workers commonly get dumped into this one demographic and there's sort of no attention to how their characteristics and attributes vary across um, a very wide age, age group. You know, not everyone ages in the same way. But we've still got this view that older workers aren't very keen on change. They're not very innovative. They can't do tech. Um, they're stuck in their ways. So these are very entrenched views mm. that still exist out there. And while employers will say that they, you know, employ the person with the most skills, there are a significant number of Australians who feel that they are discriminated in the recruitment process and are often told they're either overqualified or not the right cultural fit. And those sort of cultural issues lead to a whole number of systemic issues in the workplace. For example, the lack of age diversity policies. You know, age diversity is as crucial as all other kinds of diversity policies because they are about keeping people engaged in work and engaged people are more productive. There's plenty of research out there um, about workers who perceive their organisations as inclusive Mm. You know, they experience greater work engagement, they have better psychological well-being, and they're less likely to leave an organisation. And given the changes in re in retirement with people wanting to work longer, th this is really crucial to, to keep people working. Both Barbara and Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. There's so, there is a lot to be said about this. Yes, all I can do is really wish you a productive weekend, I think. Thank Thanks, you. Carly. Thank you. Appreciate it. Barbara Cosson is a co-founder of War on Wasted Talent, a social enterprise that aims to change the conversation around work and ageing. And Elizabeth Hill is Associate Professor in Political Economy at the University of Sydney, as well as a Director of the Gender Equality in Working Life Research Initiative. Now, thank you. Some of you have texted in sharing your thoughts on that conversation. 
Uh, Donna, who lives in regional Victoria, writes that she retired at 71 and would have preferred to keep working and says it's a shame the rules around working on an age pension, which is her only income, mean she's not able to earn enough to pay her rent, which is a third of her pension. Uh, Philip from Cogra has other thoughts. He says... The COVID experience is that many office jobs can at least be partially achieved from home. What about skilled women working a two-day office week and lower care costs, says Philip. I think the, the, the issue uh, around working from home, of course, for women with young children is that even though that might be more convenient in, a, in one sense, in the sense that they are, they are at home and they are able to um, provide company for their children and look after their children, it's very difficult to juggle both those responsibilities at the same time. But thank you for your thoughts and do keep uh, sharing them. Uh, up next, the private helicopters, people trekking supplies up mountainsides and the organised community group helping isolated residents of the Northern Rivers. Now, after weeks of flooding that's taken lives and upended so much on the North Coast, the crisis continues in the Northern Rivers and mid-coast region of New South Wales. Lismore's flood levy was breached again this week and even um, Byron Bay, among many other towns, flooded at levels not seen in living memory. For people struggling to cope when the emergency services like police and the SES are also overwhelmed, who do they turn to? Uh, increasingly, there's some help from new community-led initiatives. That's according to our next guest, Jean Renouf. He's a former international aid worker. He's also an academic and a firefighter himself from the Northern Rivers. He has helped to found Resilient Byron, which was ready and working to help people in crisis on day one of the floods. Welcome to Saturday Extra, Jean. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Firstly, I should ask, how are you? What's the week been like for yourself and so many other residents in your area? Thank you. Well, I think all of the Northern River is feeling pretty tired at the moment. You know, I think with the second set of floods that hit us uh, this past week, there was a sense of disbelief, like not again, you know, and, and then, okay, we have to do it all over again. So it's been pretty disheartening, also affecting new communities. As I mentioned, Byron Bay did not get affected the first time, but did get affected the second time. So there's a, a sense of really exhaustion and disbelief. And I, and I feel like pretty tired too. You have been an aid worker in lots of intense places, places facing intense mm -hmm. crises like the Congo, Haiti, Afghanistan. Um so I'm presuming you don't use the term lightly when you start talking about the crisis and the impacts on a community where you're now living. No, that's right. Uh, look, it, it's been pretty staggering. Like um, I had, I have noticed different similar patterns from crisis I have worked in overseas and what I have been witnessing and being part of here. And I could see the different cycle, the, the crisis response happening roughly around the same time. The, the, you know, the confusion, the organization, um, the leadership, the tiredness, the shock, the, the coordination or lack thereof or difficulties. Uh, all of this I had seen many times before. Something which also I had seen at different levels is like the uh, um, 
the 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 role of the community like when there are no or very limited agency governmental capacity to to respond to such a massive disaster when you know the electricity is down the food systems are down the water systems are down uh and the, the needs are so immense you know there are many 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 people who don't have access and cannot be accessed by different services so the community stepped in and this is something i had witnessed in other countries especially in countries where there's very limited to no government um so yeah it was a bit staggering to see it happening but not entirely surprising either like this is something i had theorized actually as part of one of my academic publication which is currently under press saying that Disaster agencies aren't equipped to um, to respond to these massively compounded disasters. John, I'll ask you to tell us more about Resilient Byron in a moment. But firstly, drawing again mm-hmm. on that experience, you know, we've heard over the mm-hmm. past months from residents who've called the services they would normally append on, depend on, like the SES, like mm-hmm. police or the rural fire service for help. But we know also that everyone, while everyone is doing their utmost in these situations, many people have had calls go unanswered. So in your professional opinion, how has this disaster been managed? Well, I think there's there's been um, perhaps limited planning in terms of understanding the... um, uh, implications of such large-scale disaster on different systems upon which disaster agencies rely. There's been also some sort of rigidity within the structure, and that rigidity in a way is necessary in terms of identifying which is the combat agencies and uh, uh, providing clear leadership, but without necessarily understanding that there were gaps in the system that needed to be filled in the process. Uh, so, uh, as you said, I think People on the ground, like all the different um, emergency responders, and even myself, when I did uh, provide some elements of response as a firefighter, um, there was no doubt that the intention was good. Um, and people were working, you know, 24-7, literally all day, all night to help others. At the same time, the capacities were limited because in some agencies, they didn't have enough personnel actually to respond to all of the needs and in other they, they, they didn't have the right equipment to respond to the needs. So to me, this is, especially after the flood in 2017, especially after the flood in 2019-20, this is something which was foreseeable and should have been planned for. But I think there was, um, prior, prior to this, perhaps within, within governmental and disaster agencies, a limited ability to really understand the the wide-scale effects of the climate crisis so dramatically changing the nature of the disasters and therefore like preparing for the disasters of the past rather than preparing for the disasters of the future. Local communities, especially in the regions, pride themselves on helping one another. It's part of how we mm-hmm. identify what it Absolutely. means to come from a country town, for example. But so tell us about resilient Byron. How do you how do you galvanize and use that instinct? Well, Risen Vine is a non-for-profit charity, which I founded three years ago before the bushfires, but in anticipation precisely of those large-scale compounding disasters. So in all honesty, I did not anticipate the, the bushfires and I did not anticipate those particular floods. But I, to me, like if you look at the climate science, and that's what I do as part of my academic research, it was obvious that you know we were going to be hit by, this, by such large-scale compounding disasters. And it was also obvious to me based on my academic research, but also based on my experience within the emergency system, that 
there were gaps that needed to be filled. And to me, this gap is the community. As I said before, in my prior experiences, I saw community rise. They truly are the the, the first responders. Um, they are the unsung heroes of you know, doing the work, but, but not to be recognized because it's kind of anonymous and fluid. Um, but to me, it was very clear that that was going to happen. So... Uh, in the years prior, we had organized a number of projects, including training people in being resilient. And we were literally just about like last week or two weeks ago now, um, about to train 150 people to become community carers and responders, whereby we would have uh, trained them over nine months in disaster preparedness, response recovery, in community management and community building, in food security, in water security, in housing security, in energy security, in first aid and psychological first aid, and create that network of 150 community cares and responders. But then the floods hit. So <laughs> just as we were about to start the training, we had to postpone it for a few weeks, so we'll return to it soon. But uh, to me, it's unavoidable that we have to have that layer of trained, connected, sophisticated community response. So resilient buying in this context, we were we were not caught by surprise. Um, although at first we were like kind of uh, like everyone, like checking on each other. How's, mm -hmm. how's your house? You know, how's your personal situation? And once we had all of us kind of ascertain where we were, like, okay, what can we do? And then can it I? became quite clear. Yeah, so sorry. can I ask on that question of what can you do? What, are, what, what type of on the ground support um, ideally would people be trained for? Of course, we've seen, you know, lots of footage of the mud army of people out mm. helping to clean up after the fact, but but you seem to be talking about a much more systemic, organised approach. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. And the modern army is essential, but it's really just one aspect, maybe the most visible, but it's just one aspect of such response and, and recovery process. So to give an idea what we had done, and really there was a community rising, and we happened to be here, and we happened to take the lead because it makes it made sense. Uh, but we can't, certainly cannot you know, say we've done that. No, it was really the community and we, we joined forces. And so the sort of projects we have been implementing since, since the floods is, in, as you said, you know, organizing volunteers to be sent throughout different towns and region to do deep cleaning of their houses, but also receiving and donating tens of thousands of goods of all sorts, you know, from clothes to toothbrush to hygiene uh, to gurneys to generators, like water bottles, everything throughout the Northern Rivers. Um, we have also a free up shop in Malamimbi where anyone who's been affected by the flood can come and receive whatever they need. But there's what we have experienced is just not just physical need, it's also very much emotional need. There's a very of, often a space of vulnerability where people choose you know, a pair of socks, suddenly they realize what has happened to them and they, they fall apart. So it's a very much a place of, of, of care. Uh, we have also supported a number of different communities which live up in the hills and that became isolated as landslides destroyed their only access out of the valleys. And as we speak, there are still people being isolated up in the valleys uh, uh, in the northern rivers, which is pretty staggering to think um, about five weeks after the main disaster, there are still people whose road is not repaired and they cannot drive out of the property. They can walk, but it's very risky. And when it rains, as it has been, it's a, it's a very dangerous endeavor. So we have provided them all, with all sorts of support. So first of all, welfare check, checking on each each house individually, 
each uh, person individually in the height of the crisis where there were some very serious medical risk. We organized some private helicopter rescue um, to evacuate them. We've organized as dozens of flights um, where people would also receive food and other emergency items for them to be able to survive the first hours. Um, we continuously have provided them with all sorts of support, including radios, including stretchers, defibrillators, um, food again, multiple times. Um, so, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So you mentioned um, private helicopter rescue. Uh, of course, you yes. know, Byron, there are some well-heeled residents of Byron and well-connected people who might be mm -hmm. able to access the kind of help that not every community would be mm. able to. I'm guessing you know, having some wealthy residents does help in this case. Yes, but not only. I think f f really the helicopters was throughout the whole Northern Rivers. Like the helicopters were coming from the Gold Coast and um, and you know down to to Korakai Casino, Grafton. So it, it's not just a Byron Bay, and of course there's the a, a legitimate stereotype here, but it's really far beyond this. And also I think it's not necessarily a solution. You know there was a response that was needed, and people rose to the occasion, including helicopter pilots and. And all of those who are involved in the coordination, but it's not something you know, which should be necessarily implemented as the system now in place for future disasters. Uh, one of the, the things I noticed in covering um, the fires uh, on the south mm -hmm. coast, um, having been to, like yourself, been to a number of uh, crises in other parts of the world, was the very what felt like the very piecemeal response when people you know, walked into town or were finally able to, to come in to get some support. It was, uh -huh. it was minimal um, in the sense that certainly, for example, in the US after a hurricane, uh -huh. it's not uh, unusual to find social services set up with 50 desks ready to help residents if they've lost their papers, if they need immediate shelter, if they, yep. you know, there, there's a kind of a join, joining up of government support and agencies and what's happening on the ground. Is that something that you is you think might be a space we could do more work in? Yes, so there's there've been some progress. So there there has been some spaces like this offered. So this that's the good news compared to prior um, disasters. So there have been places where uh, all sort of services would come together under the same roof so that anyone affected can benefit from these different uh, supports, which is good. However, like um, this week, for instance, it's closed in Malamimbi. For whatever reason, you know, um, I understood that they don't necessarily have enough uh, HR, uh, like uh, human resources to to open it. I don't know if that's the actual actual reason, but it's pretty staggering that the center would be closed, you know, in the week where the second floods hit us. And that's an example of the, 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 the limitations in the system. Um, and those who, the, the individuals who are you know, making it uh, part of it are very well intentioned. Um, however, they have their own also, you know, mm. challenges. You know, yes. Some of them have been flooded. Some of them are coming from different regions because they're not people locally to, to provide the services. So they don't necessarily another cross of the local realities. So it's, it's a progress, but there's still definitely lots of work needed to improve the system. What, what do you think about the suggestion from Sir Peter Cosgrove, who led the response to Cyclone Larry, um, who has been saying, look, relying on the military in disasters like this is 
unviable, really, and states mm. need a paid, highly trained civilian emergency response force modelled on the Army Reserve. What are your thoughts on that? I'm not sure it's the best idea, actually. I mean, I see where he comes from, and there's some good reason to think that could be a good idea. But what I have experienced is that the reason why the community-led response has been so successful in many ways is because it's very fluid. And I hear that I think it's really important describing what it is. It's not chaotic. It's not messy. It's actually very coordinated. It's very sophisticated. There are some clear leaderships. There are systems and processes that allows communication. There is there are structure, even if they are not necessarily structured that you know you'd find in the army or elsewhere. So there is a system that has emerged from 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 the floods really that make it effective. And my concern, if you bring in another agency is you're going to um, rigidify the system. So I think the way forward is far, rather than institutionalize the response, would be more to decentralize and support emerging networks. And coming back to what I was saying before, our project, the Community Carers and Responders, is doing exactly this. We're training and uh, equipping a number of individuals throughout the Northern Rivers to be ready and connected, which means that next time disaster strike, they would have received the knowledge, they know who is who, and they can rise in their local area. But then they have the fluidity and the support from others to make that happen according to the needs that they see. So I think a, a bottom-up approach, which is coordinated and, and supported, will be far more effective than top-down, structured, um, rigid, rigid approach. I need to share with you a text we've just had, um, Jean. Mm -hmm. This is from Marge, yeah, Marge in Ballarat. Marge, apologies if mm -hmm. you're Marge, but um, she writes from Bar Ballarat, this Byron man, brilliant, he holds a hose and has the sort of planning <laughs> foresight we ought to have seen in our government but have not. Hi. So there you go. Big love from Ballarat today. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and very listen, uh, we really appreciate uh, talking to you, Jean. We'd love to um, stay in touch and speak again, you know, a month from now or so and see how those communities are faring. With pleasure. And may I add here, I think it'd be essential for Australia as a nation to have that conversation. What is the role of the community? How do we interface with the community? How can we support it? Like we have to be realistic in the centre of climate crisis is going to happen again. And the community is the one that is there already. So how can it work with community? We're hearing in the news um, that the hotels uh, around Byron and beyond Mullum are, are full. Uh, with people who've had mm -hmm. been forced out of their houses, Lismore as well. Uh, but of course, it's mm -hmm. coming up to Easter time and a lot of uh, holidaymakers have made bookings in these hotels. So there's now an effort underway to relocate people again. How disruptive mm. is that, that that kind of constantly, I'm, I'm not in my house, now I'm in a shelter, now I have to move to another location? Look, it's not only just disruptive, it's deeply traumatic. Like for anyone in Donda Rivers, whether you were affected directly by the floods or indirectly, it has been a massively traumatic event. And it will take a month, if not years, for people to really recover. There are existential questions here. It's not just, okay, I need to clean my house and return to it. It's like, can I actually live here? Is it safe for my kids to grow here, grow up here? Um, and these questions need to be tackled as part of, again, a larger conversation about how do we live in this century of the climate crisis. Um, the housing security or insecurity was already prevalent before the floods. Um, I myself had to leave the Bayern Shire because I could not afford living there anymore with my family. 
Uh, we live in the northern rivers now. Just we moved just next to Lismore two days before the floods, um, and and it, I, I can tell you countless stories, similar stories where you know a lot of people cannot live in the area anymore. Um, so the, the the floods have just exacerbated that this crisis. But clearly, it's, it's structural. It's not just you know a disaster that made things bad. It, it was already pretty bad before. Indeed, John. Thanks so much, and good luck in your work. Thank you. Thank you. That's John Renouf, the co-founder of Resilient Byron, a not-for-profit charity, as you heard there, coordinating the community-led flood crisis operations around Mullumbimby, surrounding areas. He's also a former aid worker, volunteer fiery and a lecturer in international relations in his spare time at Southern Cross University, just the type of superhero guests we'd like to give you. Uh, Coming up, given what we've learned through the pandemic, how can we reinvent our urban spaces for the better? Is public art the answer? Now, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've all spent far too much time in our local neighbourhoods, maybe even on our sofas. Um, During this time, you may have developed a new appreciation for our public spaces or perhaps realised what's really lacking there. Well, our next guest says there's been there's certainly no better time than now to think about how can we get creative with these spaces. Charlotte Day is the director of the Monash University Museum of Art and the co-editor of a new book, Let's Go Outside, Art in Public. She's a big proponent of public art and thinks that this art form can uniquely tackle the issues and realities of communities. Welcome, Charlotte. Well, thank you. Nice to be with you. Very nice to be with you too. Um, we, it, it is interesting, isn't it? We seem to have gotten to know our towns uh, and, and uh, communities better than ever before um, through COVID, discovering new pathways. Uh, I'm wondering though, let's start with this question of public art. Tell us your, your favourite piece of public art anywhere in the world and why. Oh. I know, it's a biggie. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because I've been involved in a lot of projects, but they're kind of like my family, so (laughs) I can't choose between them. Um, Historically, when I was a child, I loved the Tarax Play sculpture by Peter Collette. Um, Some of your listeners might remember it. It used to be in the garden behind the National Gallery of Victoria, but now it's actually relocated to McClellan Sculpture Park um, on the peninsula. So it was a cluster of... I think it was white fibreglass bubbles that you could climb over or sit in or hide. Um, so I suppose as a child that was like just this amazing magical space I loved. But um, more recently, certainly Callum Morton's Hotel on East Link Freeway is a work that I think is particularly successful because it's kind of captured the public imagination. So it looks like a kind of generic roadside hotel, but when you drive past, which you're doing at quite high speed when you're on that freeway, you kind of get a sense that the scale's off. You know, it's somewhere between a model and a building. And I like that it's just, you know, slightly jarring that it kind of gets you thinking, gosh, why is that hotel there? You know, this is like a spot between A and B where I'm going, you know, where I've come from. You don't really think about that location so specifically so it makes you kind of take a second look and perhaps think a bit more about where you're travelling through. I think that's a particularly successful work. 
So your gallery, the Monash University Museum of Art, has a big collection of public art, including a, a fantastic giant humanoid robot that sits in oh, the yes. university's grounds. Why do you why do you think it matters so much? What makes public art so valuable to our experience of a place? We've tried. I mean, there's been public art at the university actually since the kind of late 60s. So there's always been a sense to bring art and culture, um, you know, into the experience of studying or working at Monash. But more recently, we've tried to look at the campus itself as a bit of a testing ground for the public realm and like what can we do there with artists that shapes the experience of being, you know, between buildings in the landscape differently. So sometimes like um, Ronnie Van Hout's robot or robotic-looking form that you describe. Sometimes the works are meant to be playful. Other times, you know, they're kind of more provocative or questioning. Um, Also, we're kind of looking at, you know, making spaces that are more friendly or comfortable or feelings of safety can be important too, I think, particularly in the broader public realm. So there's not like one shoe fits all. I think the works, you know, can operate on a variety of registers, but hopefully we can create an environment that kind of has more, um, I suppose, character to it and perhaps also um, makes more people feel welcome or supported within it. You know, I think that's historically the idea that these public spaces were more neutral, I think, is increasingly being challenged because, you know, there's no space that's actually neutral. So it's like, what, what do we put here and what does it mean when we put something here? So, Sometimes I like works where, you know, you really feel like it is you are looking at a public artwork or an artwork that an artist has conceived. Mm -hmm. But other times we might involve artists in rethinking these spaces and, you know, you might not know that they've actually, that this is an artwork. You know, it might be that you just, the space feels different, you know, or you feel differently in it. I mean, I think, yeah, there's there's different ways to do it, but um, it's definitely a growing area of um, art making. I guess there's also, you know, traditionally um, sculptures and statues, uh, plenty of statues in, in Australian towns all around the map. Mm. Uh, and that that is also in itself a sense of, you know, public art or, you know, communities commissioning yes. works. And yes. that's, that in a way, though, is also, I note you talking about art making more people feel welcome. And I guess what we're discovering in our conversations now about a lot of those historic statues is that some of those statues are distinctly unwelcoming for some parts of our communities. And it's about Absolutely. telling a certain story of the history of that place. Yeah, I think, um, you know, particularly that kind of commemorative or um, statuary, you know, was a lot of it in Australia was telling a particular story of, you know, settlement that really is, um, you know, it doesn't really tell the full story and increasingly that's challenged by, you know, a lot of the community. Um, But so probably one of the most, um, I think, the area of public art that is really um, coming into it is own is around telling different stories of our history and as well as perhaps adding things, maybe also taking things away or revealing something that perhaps has been covered or built over. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of work that will, you know, tell the story of the First Nations people better here. And I actually saw a really lovely, quite subtle work 
couple of weeks ago in Sydney. So it's near Circular Quay. I think it's called Circ- um, Key Lane. So it's just, it's soon to be um, um, unveiled, but it's a work by Rodri Camilleroy, artist Jonathan Joan and Jones, and he's created in the facade of a kind of a probably like an early colonial building, um, just this line of um, bronze oyster shells and mm-hmm. the line on the building marks where the um, tide line would have been, you know, before oh, Sydney was built up. So mm-hmm. it's really nice because it connects to the first people who were living and, you know, thriving there, but also um, even just the environment, you know, and how that's been shifted by the building up of the city over time. I guess when when we talk about the disputes now over um, statues and history and who tells those stories, it does reveal the connection that people feel to those works of public art or efforts mm. at representation in public spaces. Yeah, I think it's it's the, it's a pretty lively debate. I mean, from my point of view, I think total erasure or removal, maybe sometimes it, it's better to keep things but recontextualise them or add things to them that tells maybe a more complete story, you know, I think. But I think there'll be a range of responses in the end. Like in America, especially through the Black Lives um, matter movement mm-hmm. and probably in the UK too there's been a lot of big shifts in the last two or three years and that will that will probably happen here more increasingly but I am interested in you know what can be what we shouldn't actually forget how we chose to tell a story but you know perhaps augment it or correct it <laughs> on occasions you know I maybe, think maybe have varieties more... varieties of the story so as you exactly, walk through the park exactly, you get all the various yeah. histories yeah and that's increasingly the more people that are involved in public art or the more kind of range of artists that are kind of um, doing this type of work, I think you'll get a better range of stories and, you know, that can only be a good thing. I mean, you talked about your first, you know, your, your um, in, the impact that a piece of public art had on you as a child uh, in your first answer to us and I'm, I wonder whether it's safe to say that the audience for public art is quite different, isn't it, from a traditional gallery audience in the sense that, you know, I know my kids love, we live in Newcastle and there's some um, Brett Whiteley work uh, on display in the very centre of Newcastle. I don't think my kids would, would, they wouldn't be thrilled if I said that I was taking them to a gallery tomorrow, but if I said we're going for a walk and we're going to go and look at the big egg sculpture... Um, mm. down in the park, they'd be quite up for that. Yeah, absolutely, isn't it? So I think that's the beauty of public art, that it can be kind of engaged with and encountered even by chance. You know, you may not purposely be going to go and see it, but um, it also, you know, it opens, it's it's also harder, to, I suppose, to gauge the response to it because mm. within the museum or gallery for me, you know, I can kind of speak to audiences, I can kind of see how they're interacting Whereas public art is kind of just put out there. And um, I know from like how we try to look at the effectiveness of what the works we're doing or not, you know, it's like social media is actually quite a big part of that response for for better or worse sometimes. Um, But I think sometimes an artwork can just, it can kind of capture the popular imagination or it can be, you know, we're going to meet at the blah, blah. Like it can be, Mm. it kind of becomes part of your life. I mean, artworks can that are in galleries too, but maybe the public art ones do 
in a different way. And I, I think there's a lot of potential in that. I wonder um, too whether whether COVID means that, you know, anyone who might still be nervous about going to a massive opening of a big show at a, a traditional gallery, you know, the kinds of blockbuster yeah, shows feel, that those galleries mm, re- rely on, maybe there'll mm, be some nervousness about that. Well, I think there's... Um, even with, I participated in, uh, I went on a kind of bike ride part of Design Week the other week. So even part of Design Week, they were doing um, tours of, you know, uh, kind of interventions in the public realm as well as, you know, going into galleries and in different environments. So I think increasingly that, I think it will be part of what, um, you know, is culturally offered. A nice, a really nice um, thing that's actually come back. Do you remember that? Oh, well, it's a bit of a Melbourne thing, but the art trams, so it was artist-painted trams mm-hmm. that were kind of a big thing, I think, in the 90s, um, maybe into the 2000s. But recently the um, Melbourne Festival, which is now called Rising, they brought that program back and um, have been commissioning, you know, really interesting local Indigenous artists to paint series of trams each year. So, I mean, that's a nice work because it kind of circulates around the city and through the suburbs, you know. And anyone gets to see it, and it, and it's accessible. You don't you, yeah, don't, you don't need a you absolutely. don't need a ticket to to see it. Yeah, you know, drive by. I on mean, the street. that's the um, really that's one of the amazing things around contemporary art per se. Like so much of it, even in galleries, you can experience without having to <laughs> pay any money, <laughs> which I always like to advocate for. Oh yes, it's always, yeah. always a selling point. Um, yeah. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, pleasure. Have a lovely morning. You too. See you. That was Charlotte Day, the director of the Monash University Museum of Art and the co-editor of the new book, Let's Go Outside, Art in Public. I'm afraid I'm about to head out into the rain, but I'm sure that even thinking about that art will get me through the gloom. I might go uh, down to the quay and see if I can find um, the Jonathan Jones piece that Charlotte was talking about. that's it for Extra with me, Kylie Morris, this week. Thanks for listening. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.